As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. For best results, play it loud. Let the words sink into you. If you're like me, you're a big believer. You're a big believer in the healing power of music. And if you're like me, there's moments in your life where you had to dig deep. You didn't know where you're going, where you were headed. And I honestly find listening to this song on repeat works wonders. Listen. In my humble opinion, in my humble opinion, this is what music is for. This is what music is for. When it's done right, when it's done right, there is a healing quality to music. There's something, there's an unattainable X factor, something that no amount of scientific research or analysis can determine, and that is why when some music hits you, it can give you goosebumps. There's no explanation for the power of music. There's no explanation for the healing power of music. But I know that in times of trouble, in times of strife, in times where I didn't know which way I was going, listening to this song, times like these, over and over again, pulled me out of many a pit. Which is why when your friend of mine, Matt Patrick, was going through some of his very, very real struggles a little while ago, I fired off an email and I was like, hey man, for what it's worth, I, I don't know if this song is going to reach you the way it reached me, because we're all different. We all respond to different things, but I have found this song gets me out of a bind. I have found this song allows me to dig deep. I found I found this song allows me to reveal some hidden potential I didn't know I had when I really, really needed it. So I hope you managed to give it a listen. And I hope it works for you the way it's worked for me over and over and over again. And Matt got back to me. And he was listening to it. I mean, it's Matt's strength of character. It's his tenacity. It's the fight in Matt 
that has him recovering now. I'm here. My name's AD. I work down the hall from Matt at a station called The Buzz in Houston, Texas. But uh, I'm privileged to be able to stand up for Matt and be sandbox strong as our boy continues in his recovery. He has the will. He has the strength. He has the get-go. He has the chutzpah, if you will. He just lacks the voice right now. So we'll be hearing from him again very, very soon. Thank you so much for joining me. You can join in the conversation by tweeting me at ADSXE is where you can find me on the interwebs. <laughs> uh, so I don't know. I don't know if you've seen this yet. I don't know if you saw it. I don't know if it's something that you read. But after the attacks in Paris this past week just gone by, there was an awful lot of posturing. There was an awful lot of, well, a lot of people had a lot of things to say, as they well should. Look, it's a sign of a crisis in the day and age in which we live. And so many people had so many things to say. And if you're like me, by the end of it, mm, by the end of it, while people were posturing a political way before the blood was even dry. You just got a little worn out. And if you've heard this, I, I apologize, but it's worth hearing again. And if you haven't heard it, it's something that you need to hear. There's a woman, 22-year-old woman called Isabel Bowdry, that was in the venue Bataclan, where an American band, Eagles of Death Metal, were playing during the attacks in Paris. And she survived. She survived the attacks. How? By lying in pools of blood of the fallen, pretending to be dead. And like I said, there were so many things, there was so much being, there were so many opinions being foisted upon us. There was so much posturing going on in the aftermath of the attacks. And I found, I found that this, this really was far and away the best, the best summary of the situation we were in her first-hand account of what happened. She said, you never think it will happen to you. It was just a Friday night at a rock show. The atmosphere was so happy, and everyone was dancing and smiling. And then, when the, main, when the men came through the front entrance and began shooting, we naively believed it was all part of the show. It wasn't just a terrorist attack. It was a massacre. Dozens of people were shot right in front of me. Pools of blood filled the floor. Cries of grown men who held their girlfriends dead. Bodies pierced the small music venue. Futures demolished. Families heartbroken in an instant. Shocked and alone, I pretended to be dead for over an hour. Lying among, pe among people who could see their loved ones motionless. Holding my breath, trying to not move, not cry. Not giving those men the fear they longed to see. I was incredibly lucky to survive, but so many didn't. The people who had been there for the exact same reasons as I, to have fun, to have a fun Friday night, were innocent. This world is cruel, and acts like this are supposed to highlight the depravity of humans, and the images of those men circling us like vultures will haunt me for the rest of my life. The way they meticulously aimed and shot people around the standing area, I was in the center of, without any consideration for human life, it didn't feel real. I expected any moment for someone to say it was just a nightmare. 
but being a survivor of this horror lets me be able to shed light on the heroes. To the man who reassured me and put his life on the line to try and cover my brain whilst I whimpered. To the couple whose last words of love kept me believing in the good in the world. To the police who succeeded in rescuing hundreds of people. To the complete strangers who picked me up from the road and consoled me during the 45 minutes I truly believed the boy I loved was dead. To the injured man who I had mistaken for him. And then on my recognition that he was not Amari held me and told me everything was going to be fine despite being all alone and scared himself. To the woman who opened her doors. To the survivors. To the friend who offered me shelter and went out to buy new clothes. So I wouldn't have to wear this blood-stained top. To all of you who have sent caring messages of support. You make me believe this world has the potential to be better. To never let this happen again. But most of this is to the 80 people who were murdered inside that venue who weren't as lucky, who didn't get to wake up today. And to all the pain that their friends and families are going through, I am so sorry. There is nothing that will fix that pain. I feel privileged to be there for their last breaths. And truly believing that I would join them, I promise that their last thoughts were not on the animals who caused all this. It was thinking of the people that they loved. As I lay down in the blood of strangers, waiting for my bullet to end my mere 22 years, I envisioned every face that I had ever loved. loved. And I whispered, I love you, over and over again. Reflecting on the highlights of my life, wishing that those I love knew just how much, wishing that they knew that no matter what happened to me, to keep believing in the good in people, to not let those men win. The lives of many were forever changed and it is up to us to be better people, to live lives that the innocent victims of this tragedy dreamt about, but sadly will now never be able to fulfill. R.I.P. Angels, you will never be forgotten. Now, I know this is, uh, it's interesting, this happened a week ago, and in some ways it's unbelievably fresh in our minds and ongoing, and in some ways people are already fatigued hearing this sort of stuff. But as we, as we look down the barrel of a new year, as we look down the barrel of an election year, as we try and make sense of what happened and as we try and figure out the best ways forward, I found this young woman and her message, Isabel Bowdry. I found it to be so inspiring. That last part, that last part where she talked about the last thoughts that were going through her mind. She thought they were going to be the last things she ever thought. She whispered, I love you over and over again, reflecting on the highlights of my life, wishing that those I love knew just how much. I hope that justice is swift and devastating in these cases. I hope that this launches us into action that deals with people like this in only the most complete and total and final way possible. Time now, my friend, to turn sand into glass and destroy the enemy of humanity wherever it may be. All of that is without question. But, but what? We'll get to that. The Matt Patrick Show. 
case you're wondering what it is you're listening to, in case you're wondering what it is you're listening to, this is uh, Eagles at Death Metal, the band that was playing at the Paris Theater Bataclan that was attacked by terrorists this past Friday, just gone by. British fans feel bad for the horror they experienced. They've set up a campaign to try and get the band to number one on the UK singles chart. Now it's a Duran Duran cover. And uh, Simon LeBond of Duran Duran has already said that when you make a cover record, a lot of the time it brings you to the forefront of uh, the, uh, the, the public zeitgeist, I suppose you could call it. And it can make your band really big if you hit on the right cover, a la Alien Ant Farm with Michael Jackson, Smooth Criminal, or remember back in the day when Limp Bizkit did Faith? Where would they Where would they be without the songwriting prowess of George Michael? Nowhere. Nowhere at all, I tell you. But when you record a cover, you don't make the lion's share of the money off of it. The people that wrote it did. And in this case, Simon LeBon of Duran Duran says that they're going to donate all the proceeds they get from the sales. Eagles of Death Metal, like we said, the band playing at the Paris Theater that was attacked by terrorists, and they commented publicly for the first time. They said, quote, While the band is now home safe, we're horrified and still trying to come to terms with what happened in France. We'd like to thank the French police, the FBI, the U.S., and French state departments, and especially all of those at Ground Zero with us who helped each other as best they could during this unimaginable ordeal, proving once again that love overshadows evil if you're just joining us i'm ad i am filling in for our boy matt patrick who is well on the road to recovery guys like beyond tough beyond tough he just doesn't have his voice back yet so i am privileged to stand up for our homie and be all sandbox strong today and you honor me by uh, putting up with the mockery i'm about to make of the sense of professionalism that you have come to associate with this program thank you so much for joining me. But if you are just joining me, I'm uh, not going to go through it again. But if you haven't read it yet, look up a French girl called Isabel Baudry. Isabel Baudry online on Facebook. She was a survivor of the attack at Bataclan, survived by lying face down in a pool of the blood of others, pretending to be dead. And she wrote an incredible firsthand account of it. And the part that stays with me, the part that stays with me, the part that stays with me and cut right through all the posturing that's going on around this was the part where she said, and please do read the whole thing, but I'll I'll just uh, recap the very last part. As I lay down in the blood of strangers waiting for a bullet to end my mere 22 years, I envisioned every face that I had ever loved and whispered, I love you over and over again reflecting on the highlights of my life, wishing that those I love knew just how much. The lives of many were forever changed and it is up to us to be better people, to live lives that the innocent victims of this tragedy dreamt about, but sadly will now never be able to fulfill. And I don't know, how did you feel? How did you feel on Friday as this was all unraveling? You know, people get... People... People get what I call compassion fatigue. And it's very unfortunate, but it's understandable. If you're not connected to something, it's difficult. A lot of time has elapsed since 9-11 when I was a kid living in New York City. It stays with me, but I don't 
I don't bang on about it all that much. Just because I feel like we finally turned a corner with that. But you couldn't help but be transported back to your feelings that day when you heard about something like this. And what I was struck by the most when this happened is, well, I hope that justice is swift and is devastating in these situations. I hope that this launches us into actions that deal with people like this in the most complete, total, and final way possible. Time now, my friend, I feel, where it's appropriate to turn sand into glass. Destroy the enemy of humanity, wherever it may be. All of that. All of that's without question. But it was also a time where I'm struck by humanity. And I'm struck by love. The miracle of kindness and compassion that is so evident in these times. I would urge you. I would urge you in these times of crisis, of hatred and of terror. I would urge you that, well, yes, yes, we do need to inflict swift, brutal justice to those who commit and would commit these crimes. So please, please, please also remember that the fight, the fight is not only in the air or on land or at sea, fought by soldiers in all branches of our brave military and the militaries of the other countries around the world who we must unite with against this common foe. The fight is also in your heart and in your mind. And we will win by not letting them take the love from our hearts for all that is good and all those who are good. So as we move forward, as we move forward, please redouble your efforts to keep love for all that is good untarnished in your heart. We need it. Who knows what the months to come may hold. There's plenty of speculation. The one thing that we're looking at right now, the one thing that I suppose has become a more pressing issue than ever, is the idea of, hmm, hmm, refugees. Refugees that are tough to vet. Refugees that are tough to vet coming from a part of the world where well, this sort of thing tends to originate from. Now, I've got a buddy that uh, I hear from on a regular basis. This guy is a, a thinker, like you wouldn't believe. A guy called Clay. He plays harp in the Josh Garrett band. There's a song called Goodnight, Goodnight, off of their record, Honey for My Queen. Have a listen clear the palate a little bit before we get into this. That's our boy Clay on the harp. Clay writes to me all the time. We have an avid correspondence where we talk about what he sees in the world as he's out on the road taking it to the people. And he sent me a really interesting message about his feelings, about his feelings about what was going on in the world and about how he felt with regard to the situation where we're about to get an influx of people that we're very unsure about coming to our shores. We'll discuss what Clay had to say next. This is The Patrick Show.
So I got a really cool email from my buddy Clay. Clay, maybe you've heard me talk about him before on one of the shows that I do. Sort of on all over the place in a bunch of different places. Right now I'm proud to be standing up for our buddy Matt Patrick. I've been entrusted with a sandbox and I'm trying not to break it. And I'm trying to remain hashtag sandbox strong by not letting the big man down. But, um, by the way, joining the conversation at ADSXE is where you can tweet me. I have kind of like an ongoing digital pen pal relationship with a guy called Clay. Clay is a listener. And uh, Clay has a lot of time to listen. Clay consumes an awful lot of media. Why? Because, well, he is a road dog musician. He really, really is. And by the way, Clay's an inspiring guy. You want to do something in this world? You're passionate about it? You can find a way to do it. Clay's found a way to be a musician, a professional touring road dog musician, and still, and still <laughs> manage to, you know, eat, pay mortgages, and things like that. He's combined his uh, his love of hitting the road and being that road dog with uh, uh, being sort of, I, I think he's a tech guy. I, I don't know. We talk about this off and on, but I, I think he... Uh, He's found an incredible way to combine his his abilities and his desire to go out on the road. And I bring this up. I bring this up because, well, look, there's a lot of people who will tell you, you can't, you won't, this isn't what people do. You need to go to college, you need to get a degree, you need to then pay off your student loans while you toil away in credit card debt, spending way too much on suits that you can't afford, uh, trying to climb the corporate ladder, ladder and claw, claw your way up to middle management. But if you really want something, if you really want something, and you keep taping, taking steps toward what you want, it'll pull you into weird situations. Like people, I'm sure, talk to Clay all the time and go, how how this happen to you? How how are you a professional touring musician that has a house and a mortgage and, and manages to pay for all this stuff and you still hold down a regular job? And he just kind of wound up in a situation. Why? Grit, determination, desire to do something that he loves. And that's a whole other show. But, man, I really admire that. Really admire that. But Clay has a lot of time to uh, listen to every single podcast of every single talk radio guy um, on the face of the planet because... He lives that weird musician's life, that dichotomy where you are on the road for like nine hours out of the day to play 45 minutes or an hour and a half on stage. And it's just like this weird thing. And what are you going to do? Detroit to Dallas is a long haul, my friend, and you got to listen to something along the way. And he also has time to write me. He's got time to write me. Let's, ha let's have a, a, another quick listen to uh, Clay's band, Josh Garrett Band, Honey for My Queen. Real do musicians that can really sing and really play. Love this. You want to go out on the road, make a living playing this kind of music? It's not easy. It's not the path that is traveled the most often. But as improbable as it sounds, there's people out there doing it, making a living, doing their thing, taking their music to the people, fighting for their music every time, every town that they go into. And whatever your version... Oh, so good. Whatever your version of that is, you can absolutely get it done. 
I love the play on words in this song. A whole bottle of wine. W-H-I-N-E. Which I'm sure uh, reflects a lot of our attitudes toward people that are constant complaining about why the welcome mat hasn't been laid out for them in life. Anyways, Clay, who I correspond with on a regular basis, and we started up kind of like this online pen pal thing in a really kind of cool and interesting way where he, he sort of approached me. He's like, mm, some of the stuff you said, I don't agree with it, and here's why. And he spoke to his experience. He made me understand what it was like to be a guy that had gone through the world in the way that he had. He allowed me to walk a mile in his shoes and understand some very important issues. Important to him. And it was cool. It was illuminating. I was like, gosh, more people should be like this. More people should be willing to not take this weird, pointless, screaming and yelling, gotcha, combative tact when dealing with people that don't agree with them. Explain your point of view. Relate to people in a way that they can understand the way Clay did with me. And you know what? Him putting me on blast in his own way, in his very own, <laughs> in his very own skilled way, led to a friendship. And you know what? I'm sure there's plenty of things that Clay and I don't agree on. But you know what? We learn a lot from each other all the time, writing back and forth. And I feel so privileged that I said something he didn't agree with because now I get to have meaningful dialogue from somebody that I learn from on a regular basis. But Clay wrote to me. Clay wrote to me, and he said, I'm very down right now. And, oh, it's hard. It's hard, isn't it? It's hard not to let Facebook or whatever form of digital media you favor get its hooks into you. So It's just so irritating. It's become such a necessary part of our lives. I mean, certainly if you're a broadcaster, if you're me or you're Matt Patrick or you're anyone in this building doing radio, then you got to have a Facebook page. you got to be on Twitter. It's just part of the job now. But, you know... Social media involves people, and people can get under your freaking skin, can't they? Anyways, Clay wrote to me, I'm very down right now. On fools on Facebook who bash Christians at every turn when it comes to choice, but now tell me how unchristlike I am to turn away potential terrorists. Same fools who have said the founding of this country was based on slavery, oppression, and genocide. Now tell me my country was founded on the immigrants' answer to the siren call of freedom. And that closing its borders goes against what this country was founded upon. I tell you, man, I'm losing my patience. I don't rant on Facebook, but I just want to scream at these people. Am I alone in this? I admittedly find myself in a small world or an echo chamber, so I don't know. I get a feel for things when I meet people on the road. And a lot of people feel like me, but we don't hear anyone talking about it. So I guess, I guess we feel alone. But by God, there is no logical reason to bring 100,000 Syrians here. None. It's illogical, unwise, unpopular, expensive, and potentially so dangerous. Why isn't the need to secure the citizens of this country a higher priority than admitting Thousands of Syrian refugees. This is outrageously and completely perpendicular to our way of life. And because Obama has polarized people so much, they don't care. They don't care what they defend as long as they're attacking his opposition. It's sick and it's scary. Seriously, you know me enough by now to know I'm not a tinfoil hat guy. This is real. 
The worries of the world are about to be heat. Uh, the worries of the world. And this is an important line. This really spoke to me. Thanks for the email, Clay. The worries of the world are about to be heaped upon the shoulders of average America. The turds of the world are about to be dumped on our stoops. We are going to get dirty in this. If these 200,000 get here in the next two years, like he plans, life forever changes. And I don't know what to do about it but rant to you. Sorry. That was in my inbox the other day. I was like, wow. Gave me an awful lot to think about. And we started chatting. I was like, you know, you're right to keep it off Facebook. <laughs> you're right to keep it off Facebook. Bravo on that. Because you know what, you know, ranting on Facebook does? Eh, nothing. I think. If you're like me, if you're like me, you reached a decision a little while ago. My decision was this. When that whole Confederate flag gay marriage thing absolutely dominated the internet, I was like, that's it. I'm out. None of this solves anything. I have a new policy of no longer disagreeing with people online. It'll eat away your life and it accomplishes absolutely nothing. But yeah, I'm kind of a bleeding heart. But even so, I'm like, we're letting in how many of which people, in what numbers, with no way to vet them properly? I don't believe being Muslim gives you a jihad agenda. I grew up with many Muslim friends, and I am in no way prejudiced against them. I'm going to take you through an experience I had with the three key Muslims in my life when I was a kid in high school, and what I learned from them, and why I'm having a very hard time with what's going on right now. conversation tweet me at adsxe is where you can find me on the interwebs my name's ad i'm privileged to be standing up for our boy matt patrick and uh well doing my very best like i said earlier not to ruin the consummate sense of professionalism you have come to associate with a matt patrick time slot and sandbox thank you so much for hanging out if you're just joining us we're talking about well i got a great email from a friend of mine clay guy who's a touring musician Guy who sees a lot of people. Guy who gives, gets a sense of how people in this country are feeling. You go from town to town. You talk to people. That's your job. You get a sense of how people in this country are feeling. And he picked up on a sense that, like him, a lot of people apprehensive about this idea of refugees being thrust upon us in humongous numbers. In humongous numbers. And, look, there's no way to vet these folks properly. We're Americans, sticking our necks out for other people, especially the downtrodden. 
This is what we do. This is who we are. But mm, like we said, no way to vet them properly. And I don't believe being Muslim gives you a jihad agenda. I grew up with a bunch of Muslim friends. I'm in no way prejudiced against them. I don't believe being Muslim gives you a jihad agenda, like I said. The school I went to in England, international kids, and if you couldn't learn to get along with people that came from a different background than you, you were kind of dead in the water, socially speaking, pretty quickly. So if you didn't learn to assimilate, you were going to, I don't know, you were going to be pretty alone as you went through your day. And I remember, I remember being a kid growing up in England and, and realizing for the first time that maybe things were a little different. Maybe things were a little different when I saw, I remember, I remember, I remember in the paper that morning, because it's the 90s when people read the papers, I remember the paper in the paper that morning, looking over my dad's shoulder, seeing what he was reading and seeing that there was, there was bloody conflict between Iraq and Kuwait at the time. And then I went off to school and, uh, in my social studies class, there was a kid from Iraq and a kid from Kuwait hanging out, being friends with their arms around each other. Being like, hey, bro, what's up? And I realized, ooh, maybe my experience isn't typical. I feel privileged to be in this situation where kids, I mean, kids are kids. Kids are kids. They just want to get along. They want to be able to make their way in their in their little world. And... I found, looking back, that some of those attitudes that we had as kids, and look, this is not new territory, are very refreshing and things that we might want to adopt moving forward. But I had a formative experience with three, three people in my life when I was a kid that were of the Muslim faith. And, uh, well... This is how all that played out. And this plays into, I suppose, why I'm a little reticent. I'm a little reticent about the idea of many people unvetted coming here as refugees in the times that we live in. My first, my first experience, well, I experienced my first broken heart courtesy of a Muslim girl in high school. I didn't know what religion she was. I just knew she was smoking hot. Her name her, her name was Marta. She was from Saudi Arabia, had moved around the Middle East a lot, wound up in England where I was going to school, and boy, did she ever set my teenage hormones on fire. She had this she had this long curly hair that fell in cascading ringlets around her face, and when she walked by, I could smell her shampoo. I could smell the shampoo that she used, and the smell of it blew my teenage mind. And she used to wear tank tops and Doc Martin boots and biker jackets. And remember, this was the 90s, and that was pretty much the uniform. And there were a lot of girls who dressed like that. But what set her apart was actually her kindness that I saw in her. Her kindness towards other kids and her kindness toward me. Just a sweet-natured girl <laughs> with a winning smile that made you feel like everything was good in the world. When she turned that smile on you. She was a girl that also, I mean, <clears throat> happened to be extremely easy on the eyes. So she was smart as a whip. Super hot and super nice. I mean, come on. And we'd hang out. We'd give each other, we'd give each other answers in history class. You know, when we were having problems coming up with the answer. I guess uh, we might have been 
we might have been uh, we might have given each other answers to test that uh, answers to test that we couldn't come up with. And because because I didn't want to feel intellectually dwarfed by this girl that I really liked and because I wanted her to not um, have more answers to give to me than I could give to her. I studied extra hard in that class. So I didn't really need to cheat, but I just wanted to be like, psst, 1066, Battle of Hastings. Psst, Tigris Euphrates, Scipio Africanus, and appear smarter than I actually was. But we also, we also used to have these long talks. We used to have these long talks, as you do when you're a kid. And you talk about the world and adults and what you think of it and all the bands that you liked. We like so much of the same music, and she also told me a little bit about being a Muslim. Just because, you know, I asked. I was like, how come how, how come you can't eat this or do that? And she was like, well, this is why I can't eat certain foods, and these are what my holidays are and, and what they mean and how uh, we celebrate them. And uh, she explained to me, she explained to me that she felt like she drew, drew strength from her faith. She felt like her faith, like a lot of people I think get from their faiths, let her know that any obstacle that she ever encountered, well, she knew that she'd been given the tools by her creator to deal with them. And that seemed pretty cool to me. And I knew, I knew, we knew, we got along so well. We knew that something was going to happen between us. I mean, look, Full disclosure, I've been terrible with women my entire life. When it comes to reading signals or knowing that I have a shot with someone or being able to talk a good game, I'm useless at that. Not good. Not good at all. I never, ever know. To this day, I never, ever know if I'm going to get to see or maybe even touch a boob. And for that reason, I tend to err on the side of caution and assume that uh, I'm not gonna, this isn't gonna happen. And you know what happens when you assume that you're not gonna and it's not gonna happen? Usually it doesn't. So yeah, didn't have a fantastic strike rate with women back then or now, but I knew, I knew with her, we knew something was gonna happen in those early high school years when you're on the precipice of maturity and everything, everything that you do is kind of like a tiny glimpse of your adult life that you're trying to figure out. What's that going to be like? What will it be like when I'm 20 years old? And everything, everything is unbelievably intense because it's the first time for everything. When you're 16, the idea of being 20 seems impossible. But for once in my life, I knew what was going to happen with this girl. What happened? We'll get into it in a second. Join the conversation at ADSXE. Matt Patrick Show. So, if you're just joining us, we're talking about the Muslim girl that broke my heart. Broke my heart. 
in high school. And that's why we're playing the Beastie Boys. What on earth does the Beastie Boys have to do with the Muslim girl that broke my heart? And uh, if you're just joining us, I'm AD. Privileged to be standing up for our boy Matt Patrick in the sandbox today. Joining the conversation at ADSXE. But what does what what do the Beastie Boys rather have to do with the Muslim girl that broke my heart in high school? This girl Marta that I was in love with. But like we were really good friends. We connected in all sorts of ways. And look, we were kids and I grew up in England and it was this sort of international school where there were people of all faiths and backgrounds and really we just wanted to get along with one another. And if you weren't sort of like, I guess, if you weren't accepting of people that were different from you, you're kind of a social pariah in those situations because everybody just wanted to get along, have friends and take their best shot at being popular. And man, this girl, Martha. We really got along. We had a great time. She explained a little bit of what it was to be Muslim to her, and I, I really kind of didn't, you know, I, I really didn't make that much of it. It sounded cool to me because, well, like a lot of people who talk about their faith, she drew strength from her faith. And she felt like it let her know that any obstacle she ever had that she encountered in her life, she knew she'd been given the tools by her creator to deal with it. And that seemed, like I said, pretty cool to me. But where do the Beastie Boys come in? Look, like I said, I've been terrible with women. Terrible with women my entire life. When it comes to reading signals or knowing that I've got a shot at being able to talk a good game, useless. Useless at that. Never, ever know. Never know if I'm going to get to see or touch a boob. And for that reason, I always kind of err on the side of caution because you don't want to sort of like go in and get shot down and have it be awkward, especially if you really like the person. No, oh, that's uncomfortable. So, yeah. I, I've tended in the past to err on the side of caution and assume that I'm not going to get to see or touch the aforementioned boob, which means usually, usually I don't. But in this instance, it's like 15, 16 years old. I mean, nothing crazy was going to happen. We were kids, but I knew we, we knew that something was going to happen. Those early kind of like electrical high school years when you're on the precipice of maturity and everything, everything that you do is kind of a tiny glimpse of your adult life. You're rolling through life. You're trying to figure out the world and your place in it. And everything that happens is just that much more intense because of that. It's like the first time for so many things that you do. Like think back to when you were 16. When you're 16, the idea of being 20 seems so impossibly far off. But you get these glimpses of what it might be like as you make your way in the world. And it makes everything just crazy exciting. And I never knew where I stood with females. Very unsuccessful with them for that reason, like I said. But we knew, me and Marta, we knew. We knew we'd eventually have, we knew we'd have our moment. We knew it was building up. Our friendship was leading to more. And it had been for a, a year at this stage in the game, I think. And we knew we'd have our moment. And we knew we'd get together. For once, after hundreds of awkward conversations with girls that I thought maybe liked me, but I wasn't sure. Man, we, we just knew. I knew what gave it away. I knew what gave it away. I knew I was onto something good because, well, I grew up playing drums. I played drums since I was like four years old. Before I was in radio, I was in this band and we made records and toured the world. And it was a great old time. And when that was all done, I needed a job and uh, having no applicable skills, but a very big mouth radio seemed like a good move. But I grew up playing the drums since I was four. And I'd gotten pretty decent by the time I was 16. And uh, well, I knew she was into me when... She said, can, can, I, can I come and watch you play the drums? I used to take my free, free period, go down to the music room, play the drums. And she was like, can I come and watch you play the drums? I was like, uh, well, I, I'm just going to play and you're going to do what? And she was like, just, just watch. And I was like, oh, 
you just want to watch while I play the drums? And she's like, yeah, it'll be my own private concert. <laughs> and and I, I, I knew that's what gave it away for me as a kid. I wasn't good at reading signals as a 16-year-old. I'm not now. But that one, I picked up on that lickety split. And that day when she came to watch me play the drums and get her own private concert, I went after that drum kit like Dave Grohl meets Tommy Lee on a good day. Oh, yeah, sure, absolutely. This is how I always play the drums. I always spin the sticks in the air and catch them behind my back. I always hit a gong, and then I always finish my little practice sessions by setting the drums on fire. (laughs) This is what I always do. Nothing special just because you're here. I'm not showing off for a girl. This wasn't for your benefit. I'm just an absolute rock star at all times. (laughs) She was, like, enthralled. And I was amazed that she was enthralled. Now, where do the Beastie Boys come in? Well, as if that wasn't a signal enough, she asked me to make her a mixtape. You remember those? A mixtape? When a teenage girl asks a teenage guy to make her a mixtape. A mixtape. Man, you put way more thought into that mix than your, like, average Harvard PhD candidates in the molecular biology fields put into their research proposals. Oh my God. It was, it was science. It was surgery. It was perfection is what that mixtape was. I got it right though. You get the mixtape wrong. It could be all over, but I got it right. I nailed that mixtape ACDC and the beastie boys to prove I was a freaking badass. bad brains and black flag to prove I had integrity. Sinatra and Ella Fitzgerald to let her know that love was without question in the air. And not only that, this is how this is this is what a masterpiece that mixtape was. I managed to find a way to bridge the gap between Frank Sinatra and Bad Brains and make this mixtape work. How? Still not entirely sure to this day, but it worked. It was perfect. It said everything I needed to say without me saying a word, which is exactly what you want as a teenage boy. This was going to be it. This was going to seal the deal, and she would be my girlfriend. She would be my girlfriend. She would be mine. She was perfect, and this was perfect. And then she called me. And Oh, man, a call from a girl, a call from a girl. Oh, my heart left when I heard her on the other line at the other end of the landline that we used back in those days. A girl calls. Kid sister picks up the phone. It's for you, big brother. I'm like, I'll just take this as far as humanly away for, as possible as I can get from the rest of my family. Oh, good. This closet appears to be empty. I'll shut myself in there and talk to this girl I really like on the cordless phone. Fantastic. Oh, the 90s were the best. But, uh, yeah, my heart left. I heard her say on the other end of the phone, saying to me that, hey, I want to see you really soon. I want to tell you something. And I really want my mixtape. Is it ready? I was like, yeah, yeah, it's ready. I gotcha. And she was like, right, can you also give me a picture of yourself? And man, I knew I knew it was a lock. I mean, I'd always known it was a lock. I, you just, uh, yeah. I'd always known, didn't want to rush things. Wanted to let things happen because we were having such a good time being friends and we knew something was going to happen Eventually, but this girl broke my heart, broke my 16-year-old heart into like a million pieces, or I guess really her dad did. When I went to give her this mixtape and the photo booth picture I took, remember it was the 90s, 
She really did have something to tell me. She was moving. We were like these kind of international kids that moved around a lot. You know, people got transfers for different jobs. A lot of people, a lot of people in Houston went to school where I went because a lot of the kids there were in the energy business. And so like, what's up, everybody I went to high school with? I'm on the radio now. Not as cool as you thought. Um, Anyways, but uh, she was moving. Her father had been transferred. He was moving back to Saudi Arabia or, or, or wherever it was. I don't really remember. And they were leaving, like leaving soon, leaving next week. Spent a year building the beginning to a perfect relationship with this girl when I was 16 years old, not wanting to rush things, wanting to do things right. And it all comes crashing down because she's leaving in a week after I'd been... Oh. And she told me she told me how much she would miss me and how her heart was broken. But how she was going to listen to the mixtape every day and ask her parents if she could come back and visit me in the summertime and how she'd write me all the time and she gave me a necklace. She gave me this kind of cool necklace, which I wore uh, until I met another girl and we started dating and I realized that, uh, oh, this is a life lesson. Sometimes girls don't like it when you hold on to stuff given to you by other girls. And uh, yeah, I was heartbroken, heartbroken. It was my first broken heart and I never even got to date the girl. But, you know, the teenage heart is resilient and it bounces back quickly. But that was my formative experience with someone who is a Muslim. So I really didn't grow up with much of a chip on my shoulder with regard to people of specific faiths. But I had two other friends in high school that were Muslim. Very different stories. And we'll get into that next. Goosebumps. Goosebumps. Can't do anything about it. Play this loud. This is for our boy Matt Patrick, who will be back as soon as his tremendous voice returns to him. Louder. Play it louder. You think it's any coincidence they talk about going to Texas and having fun in this song? No. No, it's not.
Yes! Fire! Fire! Yes! Yes! <laughs> oh. oh, where did we go, Brian Johnson? Where did we go? You're damn skippy, you did. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm AD. Why are we playing ACDC? For a number of reasons. First and foremost, ACDC rule. Second of all, if you're just joining me, ACDC was an integral part of a mixtape I made for a girl I fell in love with in high school. Who happened to be a, a Muslim. But we were just kids. The reality of cultural divides hadn't kicked in yet. We were just happy to listen to this at high volume. We really were. By the way, <laughs> a little insight on yours truly. If you're just joining us, I work at a bunch of different radio stations. One down the hall called 94.5 The Buzz. And, well, having crawled, having uh, clawed my way to middle management in America and being a programmer of radio stations, it's my job to sit there analyzing lots and lots of research, trying to figure out which Metallica and Red Hot Chili Peppers songs will make I heart media more money when I play them on the radio. It's, uh, you know, like I look at what the people in the town that I work for, work in, the people that are good enough to make my show a part of their day, I look at the research that tells me what they like and what they don't like, and I do my very best to give them exactly what they want over and over and over again. But when you get into music-related fields because you love music and not number crunching, um, that stuff, as much as, you know, it, you want to give people exactly what they want at all times, what it takes to do that will take a bit of a toll on your passion for music. There's no two ways about it. But if I ever find myself lacking in any kind of passion for music whatsoever, ACDC, ACDC or the Beastie Boys will bring it back for me, screaming back. I've never listened to Thunderstruck by ACDC and not gotten goosebumps. You just it's, it's impossible. It's a physical, visceral response that you can't do anything about. And you know what? It cuts through the BS of absolutely everything else in your life. So... Having some problems? ACDC, my friend, they'll look after you every single time. I promise you this. But they were part of this mixtape. Part of this mixtape I made for a Muslim girl that broke my heart. We knew we were going to have something. And she broke my heart, or rather her dad broke my heart by accepting a job transfer and moving away right as we were about to get together. Right as we were about to get together. So that was like one of my formative experiences dealing with someone who was of a different faith than me. And you know what? It's painful, but not because of anyone's religion. Am I still in touch with her all these years later? Not really, not, not on a regular basis. I mean, that was a special formative time in our lives. You know, I think we like each other's posts on Facebook every once in a while. She's got a couple of beautiful kids. She's married. Uh, I think she's an executive chef at a resort in Spain, of all places. She did post this message online after the attacks in Paris, though. It said, Paris, I love you. Beirut, I love you. Egypt, I love you. Syria, I love you. Israel, I love you. America, I love you. I'm a citizen of this world. I am peace. I am love. The world is mourning Paris today. And many others have been bleeding for decades. Shame on us. This is a war against humanity. And only united in love will we stand. I wrote her a little note. And she was like, just devastated by what's been done 
in the name of her religion. So, the other two Muslim kids that I grew up with, one was actually like a really good friend of mine, really good buddy. The other one was his brother. Now, my friend, my friend was awesome. He was into all the same stuff as me. We liked graffiti. We liked rap music. We liked rock bands. And we liked The Simpsons. And we liked The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And we'd go out. We'd go out and we'd try and talk to girls. And we'd get shot down. Well, I would get shot down, as you and I established earlier in the show. I'm not good at talking to females. But this guy, my friend Tim, that was his name. I think his, uh, his, um, his real name was Timor. But he went by Tim. He was so cool. And he really, man, this is a guy that had a gift of gab. He's really fun and easygoing and easy to talk to and down to earth. And honestly, I knew his whole family was Muslim, but he kind of rebelled against it. He actually sort of rebelled against his family's Muslim faith. We talked about it. And this is kind of my second experience of dealing with someone that had a Muslim background, upbringing, whatever you want to call it. He was like, yeah, my parents, my parents are all uptight. They're trying to keep up traditions that sort of mean nothing to me. Trying to keep these traditions that mean nothing to me alive. And he, quite frankly, was more interested in playing guitar than anything else. And he was really good, too. Like, he was really good. Man, we would hang out. He could slam his wah-wah bedroom. He could slam his wah-wah pedal on in his bedroom. He'd crank up his amp to 11. And if you closed your eyes, if you closed your eyes, this is how good he was. If you closed your eyes, you'd swear that you were listening to Jimmy Page or Jimi Hendrix. He was really good at guitar. He knew how to rock. And he was an awesome guy, too, that I had a lot of fun hanging out with back in the day. Rebellious streak against his family's religion, found it to be restrictive and uncompromising, not what he was about. He was cool as hell. His brother, Ollie... It's funny, both of them had sort of like westernized names. Tim, his real name was Timor, I think. Ali, his real name was Ali, but he put an O at the beginning of it. But yeah, his brother Ali, I did not get along with that guy. Did not get along with that guy. It's like, you ever run into those people that you're just like, oh, this guy's, this guy's terrible. There's really nothing wrong with him, but you just know that you're not going to get along. You're not going to be friends. This was his brother, Ali. What happened with Tim and Ollie, the other two Muslim kids that I grew up with? We'll get into it in a second. Join the conversation at ADSXE. That's vicious. This is the Matt Patrick Show. Music, don't you think that music is an incredible time machine? If you're just joining us, 
Man, today started. Today started as, well, look, we're about to get an influx of refugees. A lot of people not so comfortable with that whole idea. And I thought it'd be kind of cool to, well, look back at my childhood, my early high school life, when you start to form opinions. You start to form opinions and figure out who you are. And I had three kids in my life in a pretty big way that were Muslims. Lots of sort of like peripheral friends. Now you can turn this up, James. Go for it. Let's have a listen to this. That um, had a big impact on my life. And in many ways still do today. First person was this girl that broke my heart. Broke my heart by moving away. We were on the precipice of being together. And her dad's job up and and moved her back to Saudi Arabia. That was no good. But I made her this mixtape. I made her this mixtape, and I was thinking about today's show. I was like, what was on that mixtape again? Oh, the BC Boys and ACDC and a bunch of stuff, up to including this one, Pat Metheny, Last Train Home. And music's an incredible time machine. I mean, this started out as a chat about refugees, as a chat about what happened in Paris. But aren't you just struck? Aren't you just struck with the ability? And maybe not. Maybe these songs that we've been going through mean nothing to you. But you got to have songs that work like this for you, where all of a sudden you hear this, you're 16 again. Listening to this, I'm in my bedroom making this girl this mixtape. Trying to figure out how to make it fit exactly so there's not like 15 seconds of time at the end of the tape. And trying to figure out what songs would say the things that I wanted to say to her but couldn't say. And I remember I remember who was on the phone that interrupted me while I was making the mixtape. It was actually my buddy... Tim that we talked about earlier who was also Muslim and uh, he was just like my buddy he was my boy we had fun he kind of rebelled against his Muslim faith he wasn't a fan of it he felt like his parents were stiff and restricting and wanted him to care about some stuff that he really just didn't care about he felt like they were uptight trying to keep traditions that meant nothing to him alive what he wanted to do was rock. He played guitar. He played electric guitar. He was really, really good at it. We liked all the same stuff. We liked the same comedy. We liked the same rap music. We occasionally did graffiti together as a kid, as kids. And yeah, it was my boy. I was my buddy. And he called while I was making this tape. And I remember telling him, I was like, dude, the mixtape's almost done. He was like, dude, this is so going to work. It's going to be awesome. Look, you know the importance of a mixtape. <laughs> like I said, it can speak volumes. For you, when you simply haven't got the words because you're a pimple-faced 16-year-old with carbonated hormones that doesn't know a way, doesn't know which way's up and which way's down. So a mixtape was important. Now, his brother, his name was Tim. His real name was Timer, Timor. His brother Ollie, his real name was Ali. They both kind of westernized their names, I guess. His brother, he and I did not get along. There's really nothing wrong with him, but you know, you meet these people and they just immediately rub you the wrong way. You realize you're not on the same page and you probably never will be. And anyways, his brother, I didn't like him. He was a little bit older and a lot more judgmental, I felt. I felt like he was gruff. He was rude with me and his brother. And I always felt like he was looking at me out of the corner of his eye. And there was just something about him that just straight up wasn't friendly. He wasn't friendly. He wasn't like, hey, how you doing? He was one of those kids. He was one of those kids that could grow a mustache in the eighth grade. The result of a berserk pituitary gland, I'm sure. And he did. 
he grew this eighth grade mustache and had it for the rest of the time that I knew him in high school. And it was like this weird, cheesy, standalone stash that he regarded as, well, he regarded it as being the sign of a man. And uh, he used to get on his brother's case, him and his bristling, bristling mustache. He used to get on his brother's case, my buddy's case, all the time. When, it, when his brother played guitar that he was so good at, he'd come into the room and he'd scream at him in a language that I didn't understand. But I got the gist. I got the gist that he was being told to shut the hell up. And he was just this annoying, rude, self-righteous guy that pretty much stood for everything that me and his brother were not. Couldn't have been more diametrically opposed. Now, what happened to these kids? I lost track of them. You know, grew up in the 90s, pre-Facebook. And uh, I lost track of both of these kids in the 90s and early 2000s after high school. Because... You know, you, you just kind of don't manage to stay in touch. So you hear little glimpses. Boy, all the fun has been sucked out of high school reunions since the advent of Facebook. Like, you go to high school reunions so you can be like, oh, what are you doing? I see you got fat. I didn't. Or, oh, no, I'm the one that got fat. Oh, no. They make way more money than me. Or, oh, it's so great to see them. And, and you, you know, well, you have real relationships with some of these people. But mostly you just want to go, hey, what you been doing? Oh, you, uh, you, you have your own plumbing business. Well, that's cool. Oh, two kids. Ah, that's fantastic. Well, it's been great to see you, and then you're good for the next couple of years until the next reunion. Except, you know, now you know exactly what's going on in everybody's life because you're still friends with them on Facebook. That's that's the mystery that the digital age has taken out of going through life in this day and age. But I lost track of these kids after high school. And I would hear little bits and pieces about my buddy Tim. I heard that he was a club DJ, and uh, he dipped his toe into the world of Bollywood acting after dropping out of college. I think he went to Boston University is where he went to school. But he didn't stick with it. He dropped out of college. He was smart. He was rebellious, but he was smart. I don't think he had the greatest grades, but I think he kicked the living you-know-what out of the SATs. So he got into a good college, but then just didn't stick with it. Heard he was, like I said, a club DJ and maybe had tried his hand at acting. I didn't know what his older, annoying brother Ollie was up to. Like I said, pre-Facebook when you lose touch with folks. But it was kind of a year or two back, a year or so back, when I got a Facebook message from his older brother, Ollie. And I was like, oh, sweet. Never really liked this guy, but now I can reconnect with his bro, who was my buddy growing up, and it'll be great. But yeah, this guy was all kinds of annoying to me when I was growing up. And, well, he knew it. He recognized it. It was interesting. When we started talking, I was curious to see what an ass hat like this would end up as. And he totally disarmed me. He was like, hey, man, first and foremost, I'm pretty sure there were times when we were growing up where maybe I wasn't that cool with you. And I sort of wanted to apologize. I was like, oh, yeah, no no worries, dude. Um, Is this part of some 12-step program? Is that why you looked me up? Are you making amends? Don't worry about it. Don't lose any sleep. It's fine. And he's like, no, no, it's not part of a 12-step program. But I wanted to explain. I just, well, me and my brother, we kind of had this weird childhood growing up where our family moved around a lot. And look, we, we moved out of some places because uh, there was unrest that could have gotten me and my family killed which is stressful to a young mind. I was like, yeah, yeah, I guess. And he was like, look, I was just so uptight. 
I was so uptight and I was so bossy and I was so rude because looking back, I just know that I needed, I needed some structure in my life. I was like, oh, totally, absolutely. Hey, did, did you ever get that structure? And he was like, yeah, yeah. As a matter of fact, I did. Right after college, I went to the most structured place I could go. I was like, where's that? He was like, well, I went into the U.S. military. Turns out, this guy who I couldn't stand growing up, kind of a badass. Been fighting for our country, seen some really hairy situations. And ultimately, ultimately, I love this story because, well, this is how it should go. Ultimately, he became an officer. He was in charge of a bunch of stuff in Iraq. And he's, I think, pretty much out now. I think he was a reservist for a while, but he's out now. And, well, he was one of the success stories from the Army. He was somebody that, uh, well, in his eyes, the Army kept up their end of the deal after he stopped serving our country, after he was done being willing to die for us. After he was done, the Army helped him get work in the energy business, and he wound up transferring to Norway, where he now lives with his smoking hot Norwegian wife and a couple of kids. But I was like, if you weren't chasing me down to apologize, or why are you getting in touch with me? And what he told me kind of chilled me to the bone. James, do you by any chance have uh, some ZZ Top lined up, ready to go? If you could dig that up, that'd be fantastic. Let's do some sharp dressed man, shall we? And there's a reason for this. There's a reason why I'm breaking you off some ZZ Top here as I stand up proudly for a Matt Patrick in the sandbox. Yeah, yeah, buddy! You know, as a kid, I love ZZ Top. Had all my parents' old ZZ Top albums. Oh, here we go. Here's the knowledge. Yeah. <laughs> That's the knowledge he dropped on me. As a kid, I had all my parents' old ZZ Top records. Trey Ombre is just an unmitigated slab of awesome genius that, well, there's nothing else like it on the face of the planet. But when I heard Sharp Dressed Man as a kid, bear in mind, I grew up in the age of uh, the 90s. It was grunge. It was, hey, how long can I go without washing my hair? It was like, what about a dirty sweatshirt? Chicks seem to dig dirty sweatshirts. That's a look I should go for. When I first heard that, that was the first time I thought, like, you know, maybe there is something. Maybe there is something when you're doing your very best to uh, attract the attention of females that you are into. Maybe there is something to uh, 
you know, scrubbing up a little bit. And you know what? I tried it. I still try it sometimes. I'm essentially not a scrub. I'm not scrubbed. But, um, yeah, I find it good. When you clean yourself up a little bit, it really makes all the difference, especially when people aren't expecting it from someone like me. Like, a day where I wear long pants to the office is marked as a banner day around here. They're like, alert the media! AD's wearing long pants. Oh, wait, no, we are the media. We have been alerted. It's just weird to see you in long pants, dude. I had a hard time getting on the radio when I first showed up here. When I was trying to do talk radio, I was viewed as this crazy, sort of like obnoxious nighttime rock guy. And people were like, oh, are we going to let you on our talk stations? No, no, we're not. Look at you. You look like this overgrown kid that should be skateboarding outside of a 7-Eleven. Never going to happen. But, uh, yeah, eventually I just wore them the hell down. So here I am today, privileged to be hanging out, standing in for Matt Patrick. I was just in the hallway earlier, and I saw somebody some upper management type that was in from out of market. And I was just like, I should know this guy's name. I should know this guy's name. I didn't. I try all the mnemonic devices, but I forget names left, right, and center. I have horrendous ADD and OCD. That doesn't really contribute to the forgetting of someone's name. But, yeah, I I forget names all the time. So it's reassuring that folks like comedian Brian Regan do that as well. He's got a way of dealing with it, though, that is about as effective as mine. Give you an idea how awkward I am at parties. This, This is a true story. I'm at one... And there's a guy there whose name I should know, but I don't know it. But I keep thinking it's Winston, you know, which is not the kind of name you want to gamble at. So this is true. I grabbed another friend of mine at the party, and I said, I have a weird assignment for you. I want you to just for a second pretend like your name is Winston. All right, you see that guy there? I want you to walk to the other side of that guy, but in a straight line past him. So I'm just looking in one direction, and then I'm going to go, hey, Winston. And if the guy in the middle goes, yeah, then you just walk away. (laughs) Your assignment is complete at that point. But if the guy in the middle looks like he's confused, I need you to go, yeah. And then I'll talk to you again, I guess. So my friend thinks I'm twisty, and he's like, all right, let's do this. He walks to the other side of the guy. So I go, hey, hey, Winston. And the guy in the middle looks like he's confused. So I look at my friend and he says, my name's Winston. (laughs) Yeah, terrific. I was looking for any random Winston. Your name's Winston? Come on over, let's have a chat. I'm in the mood to talk to a Winston. I had one line and he blew it. His line was, yeah. <laughs> I also hate it when you can't get uh, someone's name at a party or a club because the music's just too freaking loud. Now, this is New York. This is like the house music capital. You got to work it. You got to push it. I don't got to do anything. I don't like being ordered around by my music, all right? Take it down a notch, just a little bit. There's one guy, the worst guy in the music, the Yanni man. You know Yanni, right? First of all, anyone who looks like a magician and doesn't do magic, I don't like. I don't even like magic. I hate it, but I love the word, ta-da. I love that word. I don't get to say it, right? I never do any magic. You can't just walk around going, ta-da, ta-da, ta-da. The only time I can say it is when I do something really stupid or surprising. Like if I go out drinking all night, hitting strip clubs, and I come home, and I still got some money. Ta-da! I 
thought I was broke. Why does my jaw hurt now? Why do we start, uh, before we got into the inimitable genius of David Tell, why do we start this segment with ZZ Top? Because in just a little bit, we're going to be having a chat with the Reverend Billy Gibbons of ZZ Top. Ta-da! I learned a life lesson from him when I was a kid, and that is every girl is in fact crazy about a sharp-dressed man. And we're going to be talking to him a little bit here today about his new solo album, Perfecta Mundo. And why would somebody like the Reverend Billy Gibbons of ZZ Top fame need to make a solo album, being the type of guy who is the creative and driving force between behind pretty much all of ZZ Top's records? Well, this solo album that he made, it's awesome. It, it almost sounds like Tom Waits does Latin music. He was invited to perform at a Havana Jazz Festival, and uh, we'll get into the whole story about why Billy Gibbons from ZZ Top has a solo record a little later on in the show, but that that's what we're going to be doing in just a little bit. Right now, though, I'm in the middle of telling a story, aren't I? I'm in the middle of telling a story about, well, here we are, in a day and age, following a very recent terrorist attack where people are all sorts of uncomfortable about the idea of refugees coming in huge numbers to our shores. And it made me think, it made me think about my relationships grown up, my formative relationships, those formative relationships you have when you're a kid with Muslim kids that I went to high school with. There were a bunch because I went to this sort of international school in England, but there were, you know, three that were very prominently in my life. And one was the girl that broke my heart, broke my heart. I was in love with her when I was like 15, 16 years old. And she broke my heart, not by doing anything wrong to me, but her, her, her parents decided she had to move away. Her dad accepted a job transfer, and that was never to be. She's married now, has beautiful kids, is an executive chef at a resort, I think, in Spain, and um, reached out to her a little bit after what happened in Paris. Just because she was shocked, staggered, disgusted by the human atrocity done in the name of her religion, which has always been about strength of character and kindness. And then I had these two other friends. I had my buddy Tim, his real name was Timor, and I had my buddy Ali. Well, he wasn't my buddy. He was his older brother. Hated that guy. He was a jerk. He was always like looking at you and being judgy and just all sorts of no good. But he actually reached out to me a little while ago. Lost track of these guys after high school being part of the pre-Facebook generation. And, well, the guy that I didn't like, Ali, he wanted to apologize. He wanted to apologize. He was like, look, I wasn't the greatest guy to you when we were kids. I had a really unstable childhood. I needed structure. A lot of times when we moved, it was because we were in danger of getting killed. And uh, well, I needed structure. I was like, well, no problem, dude. Did you get it? He was like, yeah. I got it because when I was finishing up college, I joined the army, became an officer, and well, now he lives in Norway. He got placed in an energy business job by the army when he was done. He has a smoking hot Norwegian wife and two beautiful kids. But the reason he reached out to me, besides apologizing, chilled me to the bone. We'll get into it next. You've got the Matt Patrick Show. You got that right. Yes, sir.
<laughs> yeah. My buddy, my buddy Tim, growing up, when we were teenagers, could play guitar just like Hendrix. You could shut your eyes as he was stomping on that wah-wah pedal in his bedroom, and you would think you would think you were in the room with Hendrix himself. He loved to rock. <laughs> he really did. And you know what? His parents weren't into it. Muslim family. He was actively rebelling against what he saw as being restrictive and unnecessary and unimportant to him. That was my buddy. And my friend, he had this brother, Ollie. Didn't like that guy. Didn't get along. Not cool. He was straight up a jerk to his brother and to me. Screaming at us in a language I didn't understand to keep it down, I guess was the general gist of it. So I was surprised when years later, after having lost track of both of them, I got a, face ma- a Facebook message from his older brother. And I was like, sweet. Didn't like this guy, but now I can reconnect with his bro, who's my bro- buddy growing up. But he was, like I said, all kinds of annoying to me. And he was like, first and foremost, let me apologize. I was not cool to you when we were kids. I was like, oh, okay. And he was like, I just needed structure. I was like, did you get it? And he was like, yeah. Yeah, I did. After college, I joined the Army. I did a bunch of... Well, he looked at... He he, he, whew, he was in some really hairy situations uh, in the line of duty. Ultimately, he became an officer in the U.S. Army. He was in charge of a bunch of stuff in Iraq, and he's out now. Did some time as a reservist, but he was one of the success stories from the Army. He was one of the success stories in that... Well, when he was done, the Army helped him get work in the energy business, and he wound up transferring to Norway, of all places. A lot of oil in Norway. And uh, he now lives there with his smoking hot, and I mean smoking hot, Norwegian wife and a couple of kids. So I was like, well, you didn't have to hit me up just to apologize to me. It's nice to hear from you, though. That's cool. Um, but what happened to your brother? I mean, he was like my buddy. Don't don't take this the wrong way. You and I, not so close. You were older. You were kind of a jerk. We, we didn't really talk or have much in common. What happened to your brother? And when I asked him what was going on with his brother, my super awesome high school friend from back in the day, things took kind of a dark turn. And he's like, well, here's the thing. We're not really sure. Something happened to him after he dropped out of college. He was a DJ for a little while. He was a club promoter for a little while. I was like, well, yeah, those things those things make sense. Did he get involved in drugs? Well, he did that and a few other things. His brother told me he tried his hand at acting. And ultimately, yeah, he did start doing entirely too many drugs. I was like, well, what's going on? Where, where is he now? And he's like, oh, here's the thing. We, his family... We don't know exactly where he is. We hear from him once in a while, and we think that, well, here, here's what we think. We either think that he's dead in a ditch somewhere, or he's been radicalized, and he's involved in some awful things. We hear from him once in a while, once in a blue moon, and then he's gone for months at a time, sometimes a year or two at a time. And he's like, honestly, man, this is why I wanted to look you up. I was like, I don't know where he is. I haven't heard from him. He's like, no, no, it's not that. He asked me, when I do hear from him again, do you think I can pass on your info? Look, it's a tall order. I, I've told you what the situation may be with my brother, and um, it, it's absolutely your choice. 
I mean, given what he might be into, I know it's a lot to ask. And he's like, I don't need you to ask him about anything that he's doing. I was like, yeah, because I, I, dude, are you asking me to kind of like gather info on your brother? Like, is this, and he's like, no, no, there's nothing like that. He's like, I was just hoping, I was just hoping that if I can connect him with some people from high school, from back in the day, from back when we were kids, maybe if you could just reminisce about old times, you don't have to, you don't have to even let on that you know that things have gone sideways for him since school. If you could just reminisce about the old times and friendships and things that you did, then maybe, maybe we'll have more hope of him coming back to us. I was like, yeah, okay, go ahead. You're right, it is a lot to ask given what he could be into, but go ahead. Here we are a couple of years later. I still haven't heard from him. I'm going to go out on a limb and guess I never will. So there we go. I'm not trying to do anything as trite as justify my beliefs or my opinions with the disclaimer of, well, I have Muslim friends. But those are the experiences I had. Those are the Muslims that I've been closest to in my life. We were all just kids when we met. One is struggling with the horror of the atrocities that have been committed in the name of her religion. One has bravely served in the U.S. military. Is an upstanding citizen of the world now. World traveler. Stimulating the global economy and the energy business after having defended our country. And one, one who was my friend, my buddy, my pal. Missing, maybe gone. Maybe radicalized, separated and cut off from his family. Maybe lost to people who loved him forever. And maybe part of something that would take loved ones from another person's family. My point is, my point is you just don't know. I didn't. I didn't. Never would have thought, never would have suspected, never would have entered my mind, not then, not now. That something like that could have happened to my bro. First Muslim I ever met, I fell in teenage love. I have absolutely no malice in my heart toward anyone based on their faith. But here's the thing with the refugee situation. Think of it this way if it helps break things down into an easier-to-understand type of comparison. And maybe this can help you when you're explaining your feelings to other people that are not necessarily on the same page as you. And look, you're probably not going to change someone's mind by arguing with them, but at least let them see your perspective and where you're coming from, and maybe, maybe, just maybe, we can all move forward. But this is a comparison I draw. It's like letting in people from a country that has an infectious disease outbreak. Think of ISIS, ISIL, whatever you want to call it, as being an infectious disease. A disease that gives you big, open, bleeding lesions that will get infected and gangrenous and make your junk fall off and then kill you. Think of ISIS as being that fatal infectious disease that is 
really hard to contain because the symptoms, the symptoms of ISIS, they're kind of hard to spot. You never really know if someone's got it until they're having an outbreak. And then a lot of the time, when there is an outbreak of the infectious fatal disease called ISIS, you're powerless to do anything about it because it's already too late. Now, what do you do with an infectious disease like that? Do you, uh, do you remember the funny five minutes the world had when we thought Ebola was a black plague of the new millennium that was sent to destroy us all and we were done? What'd we do? Do you remember that? Justifiably, I think the vast majority of us were all a little concerned. There were some American doctors that had come into contact with the Ebola virus, and maybe, just maybe, there was an outside chance that they could possibly have it. And, well, look, if some people come into contact with them, if we just let them wander the streets of America, that's clearly stupid. So, no, they were quarantined, kept in isolation. Sheila Jackson Lee held a press conference at an airport. It was a big deal. There was ever a band that illustrated the fact that, whether it was musically or otherwise, you shouldn't mess with Texas. Drowning Pool fall into that category. This song, Bodies, came out right around 2001, and it was banned immediately from radio stations in the wake of 9-11. And they're like, this is not what it's about. This song is actually about a mosh pit at one of our shows. That's what it's about. This part, this is about a mosh pit. Crank it. And it was banned in the wake of 9-11, but ironically now has kind of become a rallying cry for a lot of folks in the military. Anyways. Anyways, where were we? Oh yeah, ISIS is an infectious disease. This is a way that you can possibly explain your stance with regard to how you feel about the refugee situation that we're looking down the barrel of to other people that might not understand. Not encouraging you to argue. I don't think, I don't, the, the arguing, the arguing, especially online, especially on Facebook, it's got to stop because it, it really accomplishes exactly nothing. But if you can respectfully explain your position without trying to be snarky, without trying to play gotcha politics, then I think you stand a better chance of being understood and being respected. I really do. Hey, speaking of people that we respect, Matt Patrick will be on live tomorrow at 4 o'clock. Am I right, James Simpson? Is that correct? 4 o'clock? 4 o'clock. 
The legendary Matt Patrick makes his triumphant return to KPRC Radio and the Sandbox. Sandbox strong in a way that you've been looking forward to at 4 o'clock tomorrow. We can't wait to have him back on the air. I'm going to be on the air up the uh, hallway at the buzz, but I'm going to be like sneakily listening to him. <laughs> Just FYI. <clears throat> Don't tell him the boss. Um, but anyways, like I said, the comparison I draw, ISIS, ISIL, whatever you want to call it, it's an infectious disease. It really is. And, uh, well, remember that funny five minutes the world had when we thought Ebola was a black plague, the new millennium sent to destroy us all? What did we do? Justifiably, we were concerned. There were American doctors that had come into contact with the Ebola virus, and maybe there was an outside chance that they could have it. And, well, look, if people come into contact with them, if we let them just kind of, like, walk around, wander the streets of America like nothing was going on, well, that clearly would have been stupid. So, no, they were quarantined. They're kept in isolation. Anything to stop the spread of this deadly disease. It was a big deal. Sheila Jackson Lee held that press conference at the airports. It was it was quite a happening. And everybody went, hey, this stuff could kill you. And because of that, no contact with people that may possibly have it until we're sure they're safe. Remember that one doctor who went out for a sandwich? It was viewed as many by an act of treason. ISIS can kill you. ISIS can kill you dead. It's a disease. So then why why are people so quick to judge when governors, governors of states stand up and say, hey, no, no thanks. Not just yet. We don't want people who potentially have that disease wandering around the streets of our city. So, okay, let's just uh, vet them and, and give them a really good checkup. Keep them in quarantine until we know uh, that they're good. Then set them up with a whole bunch of benefits and social programs and look after them before we take care of the one in three homeless men that happens to be a veteran. <laughs> well, yeah, here's the thing. You can't properly vet refugees. Director of the FBI admitted during a House hearing, you can't properly vet all the Syrian refugees that they're bringing here. Director of the FBI, James Comey, said the federal government does not have the ability to conduct to conduct thorough background checks on all of the Syrian refugees that the Obama administration is going to bring to the U.S. He said we can only query against that which we have collected. And so if someone has never made a ripple in the pond in Syria in a way that would get their identity or their interest reflected in our database, we can query our database until the cows come home. But there's got to be nothing that shows up because we have no record of them. And as has been pointed out many times, interesting to note, most Muslim countries in the Middle East have refused to accept any of these refugees. Because they're, well, look, the Muslims are just as terrified of ISIS as the rest of the world. The ones that are not on that page, they're like, ooh, no, you stay over there. Oh, over there, thanks. Don't want to catch the disease. Meanwhile, our president's telling us that the growth of ISIS is our fault because we're not inviting people who come from a place where the vast majority of the population think Sharia law is okay to come over. On the world stage, in Manila, Obama said Republicans are serving as the most potent recruitment tool for ISIS. Yeah. 
Republicans are the most uh, hmm, potent recruitment tool for ISIS. Saying basically that if we don't agree to take Syrian refugees, then we're creating even more ISIS terrorists. So ISIS murders more than 120 people in brutal fashion just days ago, and Obama's expressing more, more outrage with Republicans. Right, right. It's their fault. Definitely not yours. Definitely not your fault when you're all like, ISIS, whatevs. They're like the junior varsity squad of Islamic terrorism. You don't think they heard that and went, dude, dude, the leader of the free world is talking mad smack about us, saying we got no game. Yeah, you don't suppose that sort of insulting, that sort of insulting rhetoric might have given them a bit of a chip on their shoulder when the man perceived as the leader of the free world calls you out on the world stage as being insignificant? You don't think that might have something, a little something to do with them getting all beheady? Potent recruitment tool? That sounds like a potent tool to me. And look, I get it. Remember, I fell in love with a Muslim girl who to this day I believe is one of the kindest people that I've ever met. And I think being raised in her version of that faith was a big part of what made her the person she is. But Obama's inability to call a spade a spade, or in this, call, in this case call a terrorist a terrorist, almost borders on the insane. It's like, okay, so we're ISIS and we're doing this killing and human atrocity stuff based on a religion, and we're Muslims. Obama's like, uh, d- no, 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 they're not. They're, they're not Muslims. And ISIS is all like, uh, yeah, we really, really are. Allah Akbar, Allah Akbar, murder, 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 kill, kill, kill. We're Muslims, and we're doing this in the name of our faith. No, 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 you're not. Yes, 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 we are. Look, look, dude. Look, Obama. Look here. Read this. The Quran contains at least 109 verses that call Muslims to war with non-believers for the sake of Islamic rule. Some are really graphic. With commands to chop off heads and fingers and kill infidels wherever they might be hiding. That's what we do. And Muslims who do not join the fight are called hypocrites and warn that Allah will send them to hell. You're not Muslims. Yes, we are. Matt Patrick Show. Let's uh, let's welcome the Reverend Billy Gibbons of ZZ Top fame, a Houstonian. The Reverend Billy Gibbons of ZZ Top fame to the show. Let's do it to it. Have you ever been asked to do voice work for like uh, like for movies and stuff? Yes, I, I did the. I, I used to do this. TV, this children's program called uh, the Power Rangers, and I was I was the bad guy. I was vile vine. Why did you come to my planet? Are you kidding me? You How did I, I miss that one? That's amazing. Yeah, it was. Oh my god, it was crazy. You have a solo album out, uh, Perfected Mundo, uh, which is coming out on Friday, and this is the first solo record you've released. Even though ZZ Top's been in the game for like forty years, and I'm really curious to talk about that. But first and foremost. I wanted to know, like, I have this go-to question that whenever I get to talk to a great musician, I kind of ask him. Because when I was a kid, I heard I heard Jerry Cantrell from Alice in Chains interviewed once. And the uh, the DJ uh, in England asked him, hey, if you had to pick one record or one song or one television appearance or one concert or something like that, that made you go, okay, this is it. I have to do music. 
what would it be? And quick as a flash, old Jerry was like, oh, Elton John, goodbye Yellow Brick Road, which is not something you'd expect from the guitar player of Alice in Chains. Yeah. So that's kind of become my, uh, my go-to. So for you, wh- what would you say that would be? Wow. Uh, when I was five, my younger sister and I attended with my mom. We went down and saw, live and in person, Elvis Presley. Wow. You know, they just did it. Uh, I Mm -hmm. saw that, and I said, that's for me. Yeah. (laughs) No Uh, question about it. (laughs) At at age five years old, it all just became, all right, this is what I'm doing. Well, yeah, I've been banging on a a metal garbage can since I was three. (laughs) So it all kind of made sense. Elvis had his band behind him, and they all had parts, and they all knew what to do. And it it, it fell into place. As I looked upon that, uh, that was a... A visual that stimulated all all the dots connected. Your dad, your dad was like a concert pianist and an orchestra conductor. So if I'm getting this right, he would have to go to work, conduct the orchestra, which is something you do at night. And you got left with your housekeeper, who would then take you to a club in Fourth Ward in Houston. And by the way, I'm the afternoon guy on a station in Houston called The Buzz, so I know exactly the neighborhood you're talking about. Oh yeah. And it, so she would take you there, and like at age five, when your dad was conducting an orchestra. So your classical musician father would leave the house, and you would go get exposed to the blues. Like there was really nothing else you could do besides music. It was almost predestined. Well, it was that uh, pretty much carved in stone, I guess. You'd yeah. Say, at this point, looking back, yeah, that corner was at the curve of Taft and West Gray. And, I know uh, exactly where you're talking about. <laughs> the, yeah, you'd have to deep, dig deep into the the photographic history of that particular neighborhood. But I mean, uh-huh. it looks a little different now, but, uh, but you know, some of those energies move on. In fact, there's another track off this new disc, uh, Perfecto Mundo, is not just mm. uh, the title of one song. It is one song, but there's another one, Picking Up Chicks on Dowling Street. And, uh, so a little bit, a uh, little bit deeper into town, but uh, you know, Dowling Street is still a very robust avenue. It was, yeah, it was the, um, you know, for for the the black part of Houston's uh, giant community. Even back then, it's uh, coming back to life now. I've even heard they're they're revitalizing the El Dorado Ballroom on Dowling Street. Yeah, there's so much going on in Houston. It's just, you know, it's growing and it's growing. And it's like, which brings me to an interesting point. I don't know where you spend most of your time, but when I first moved from New York City to Houston, I remember I went to, I think it was an art show or something like that, or a gallery opening. And there you were, you know, like hanging out, um, taking pictures and, and, and really sort of like taking it very sort of, uh, you're a very active part, it seemed, at the time of uh, Houston's cultural scene. Is that something, do you still live there? Do you still stay there? Oh, yeah, you can't get out of Houston. I mean, once you're there, you're there. You cannot. Well, the heat won't let you get out of there. Yeah. <laughs> My girlfriend went down there, and, and uh, I said, so it was your first trip out of Los Angeles. Uh, how'd you like Houston? She goes, I dig it, man. It's tr- like l- trying to learn how to walk through mayonnaise. <laughs> <laughs> it's totally true. People don't understand the value of air conditioning outside of Texas. Like, mm. Houston, everybody's got it set to a chilly 65 at all times, and the only time you're uncomfortable really is when you leave the house so you walk to your car until your car cools down. Sure. And then you're all good, but then like you get to uh, you get to California and everyone's like, oh, it's set to 72. It's beautiful. You get a cool breeze. I'm like, I'm sweating. This is, And they're like, you're from Houston. You shouldn't be complaining. I was like, really? Try me, bitch. I'm complaining. It's I'm used to being 65 because I'm from the H. Oh, yeah. So, so you 
you can't get out of Houston, no matter where you roam, no matter what you do, no matter how many times you go to places like Havana and play a jazz festival and get invited to make albums like the one you've just made, you're always going to be a Houston boy, you think? I think so. I mean, we could spend the next day, or no, excuse me, we could spend the next decade just running the list of great restaurants. Someone said, Houston, Texas, yeah. I said, well, it's a great music town, but it's also a great restaurant town. And I think uh, due to the heat and the and you know, the bumper-to-bumper scene on any given avenue on any given mm. time. Uh, a lot of people take refuge, and uh, they say, pull over, let's go in there. They got some good food in there. I wanted to talk to you about, look, you know, you've been up in the game for 40 years with ZZ Top, and this is your first ever solo album. And I think I know a little bit about how this came about with you being invited to play. at Was it the Havana Jazz Fest? It is. Uh, that's a standing invite. In fact, that's where this... Uh, Billy Gibbons and the BFG's aggregation will uh, will open up. We go to Havana in the middle of December. We got a, oh, three three shows booked uh, before we bring it back to these shores. But it's going to be an interesting outing. Uh, um, we we cut a we cut a video for the lead single, which you know, speaking of Houston, Roy Head's uh, great cornerstone of uh, blues and R and B whose uh, song Treat or Right from 1965 mm. uh, found its way to being uh, given our our Cubanized version. And yeah. uh, cutting the video, I said, well, how do we how do we wrap this up? And it gave us an opportunity to bring out uh, something that everybody knows, all the famous American cars that are still left running in Cuba. And we've got this 1950 Ford shiny red chopped repowered repainted uh, it's it is the expression of cuba uh, right there mm. at the end of the tree to write video so it it uh, it made sense perfecta mundo for people that don't know billy gibbons and the bfgs your solo album perfecta mundo is out and when i heard about it i was like don't take this the wrong way but isn't every solo album sort of i i get the impression that you are the driving force behind it and a lot of what zz top is about is your vision i was like why would he need to do something different from from ZZ Top, and then I listened to what it is. I was like, "Oh, this is not a ZZ Top record. This is this is Cuban jazz." And weren't you kind of like surprised when you were invited over to play a, a jazz festival? Yeah, it wasn't. Yeah, I said, "How did my name wind up on a jazz roster of all things?" Mm. And uh, I, I guess we're still curious, but you know, we I know what we do. Uh, there's no getting around it. The blues influences will constantly be part of that that thread and at the same time we didn't want to crash the party we didn't want to miss the party and uh, we decided well let's just peel the onion and see if we can uh, start making headway in that in that cuban fashion which i i think you know once you listen to it it ain't easy top it's something really weird it's <laughs> i like it you know i look at your body of work and i and i know this is a little deep and a little esoteric but i look at your body of work and look at everything that you've accomplished and look at everything that you're still accomplishing i was like so many people so many artists like bend themselves all out of shape you know like and and kind of go against the grain of life where you seem to have found a way to absolutely swim with the current and let life take you into some really cool places yet direct yourself at the same time where do you think that attitude comes from yeah and uh, there's one simple phrase that that seems to resonate and i think everybody can learn to play what you want to hear and if mm -hmm. you're if you're if you're going to strum on a guitar, bang on the drums, uh, hit hit the hit the keyboard, it's just that. It's, first of all, it's all in the hands, 
and mm. and if you can get that muscle memory to fall in line, learn to play what you want to hear, and then you you got it. You at least you're on your way. Well, I think it's a great met- metaphor for life as well. If there's something you want to do, I, I guess what you're telling us to do is create it. I was, but you know, I was expecting to talk about music. I was expecting to talk about the new album, Perfect Mundo. I feel as though we got some life lessons from not only a legend, but a, a legend from the great city of Houston. Thank you. Thank you very much. I really, I, I can't tell you how much it meant uh, to talk to you. Well, my pleasure in, uh, you know, having the opportunity to conduct this exchange. We, I think we've just, ex- we can expand our horizons from Arroz and frijoles with this Cuban twist. <laughs> now we can have black beans and plantains. <laughs> Let's go for oh, it. Oh, yeah, yeah. Have you ever, uh, just out of curiosity, have you ever eaten at uh, Chacho's on Westheimer? Oh, love it. Love Chacho's. <laughs> yeah, man. Come on. I find that in, in Houston, there's different places that do different things really well, but absolutely nobody beats their case. Have you had the, have you had the spinach and mushroom quesadilla? They're the only place in town that does that, I it think. Does, and they do it right. They absolutely yeah. do it right. Yeah. You, <laughs> well, and I'll have, you and I will have to get together. We'll put the burn on. I'll bring over the guacamole recipe, and we'll leave uh, the rest of it to guesswork. <laughs> thank you so much. You're welcome, brother. We'll see you soon, senor. Bueno. And thank you so much for Matt Patrick for inviting me into the sandbox to uh, babysit this incredible thing that he's built. It's an honor. It's a privilege. Thank you from my, the bottom of my heart. You humbled me. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Jumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Jumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.